Hello and welcome to Radio Baghdad. We are your co-hosts Rida and Amal. Hello, Amal. Hello. Today is the one-year anniversary of the ammonium nitrate explosion in the port of Beirut in Lebanon, a small country on the eastern Mediterranean. After one year, we still do not know who or what is to blame for the explosion and how a shipment of ammonium nitrate reached the port. In today's episode, we'll be discussing why the port of Beirut is such a significant piece of infrastructure, not only for Lebanon, but also for Syria. Then, we'll get into how two Syrian-Russian businessmen and a notorious bank based in Tanzania became suspected of being involved in the Beirut blast. This will be the first out of a series of episodes covering the Beirut blast, so stay tuned to find out more on Radio Baghdad. I can tell you, whatever happened, it's terrible, but they don't really know what it is. Nobody knows yet. Uh, at this moment, they're looking. It could, I mean, how can you say accident? Somebody was, you know, left some terrible explosive type devices and things around, perhaps, perhaps it was that, perhaps it was So, Amal, you were living in Beirut when the explosion happened. Can you walk us through what you experienced? On the day that the explosion happened, on August 4th, the government had given the public a reprieve, two days where they would lift the strict lockdown that was in place for months prior. And August 4th was one of those two days. So on August 4th, many people left their homes and I ended up going to a coffee shop in West Beirut. So I'll describe the next bit kind of like a play-by-play because what we had really experienced in the moment just felt so instantaneous. So at the coffee shop, I was sitting outside and the first thing we felt was a small earthquake and then a huge gust of wind And then we heard a deafening explosion, so loud that we actually thought it was right next to us. So when this happened, most people ran out. We decided to stay behind out of fear that if it was potentially an airstrike or a car bomb, that it would just be better to stay in place. Immediately afterward, we had no idea what happened, because at the time we lost phone coverage, and so we were really just left to speculate. Later, we heard someone say that the explosion happened in downtown, And so at that point, we decided to leave the cafe and head home. Were there, can you tell us like what theories were flying around at the time? When we stayed behind, we kind of gathered with the people who also decided to stay behind. And obviously, one's first thought is an Israeli airstrike. Some people thought it could have been a car bomb. That was the extent of what we kind of immediately speculated. But later we'd find out that there was so much more to be revealed through investigations of the explosion. When we had left the cafe, we drove through the streets and the streets were just full of glass. I mean, every storefront's window had been shattered. And on the way home, we passed by um, a hospital 
And so we saw people bloodied and running into the hospital. So these scenes were horrifying, but as horrifying as they were, what people experienced in areas closer to the port was devastating beyond what we could grasp at the time. So in Jaitawi, which was where I was living at the time, which was one of the most affected neighborhoods because of its proximity to the port, every window in each apartment was shattered, walls of homes collapsed, people were killed under the rubble, those who were badly injured couldn't even get help because even though there are two central hospitals in the neighborhood, the hospitals themselves were destroyed. And so the tragedy was just on such an immense scale. But at the time, we had no idea what was happening outside of what we experienced and what we saw in West Beirut. And so it was just panic. And it was all very confusing to us. It just seems like so many things that were going wrong already made the explosion even more serious because you said Mm -hmm. the destruction of the hospitals made them incapable of basically hosting Mm -hmm. more injured people. Mm -hmm. But the fact was that also throughout the past year, these hospitals were in disarray because they weren't able to import medication Mm -hmm. due to the economic crisis and they weren't uh, able to import um, vital machinery. Beirut was not Red. I mean, no city is ready for that explosion, but Beirut in particular was already quite weak in terms of infrastructure. And then to have that blast must have been almost like the final blow. Right. And in many ways, it really was. Um, but like I said, it's just so confusing for it to happen as well, like an explosion. We're not in a state of war. I mean, I guess perpetually Lebanon the is, East. depending on who you ask. But just seeing the scenes themselves and not having an explanation for it was very, yeah, it was just very confusing. And so what gave us clarity at that time was information that was made public by an investigative journalist who had a segment on television the night of the explosion. And this investigative journalist had been investigating the corruption at the port for years. And so in his segment, we found out that it was a ammonium nitrate explosion that the ammonium nitrate was in hangar number 12 at the port for nearly seven years, and that the authority knew. So from the president, prime minister, and the Ministry of Public Works to the Army Command, State Security, and Port Authority. So finding this information out was already so scandalous and incriminating, but state negligence, we would later find out, was just the veneer, that there was so much more to the story of the Beirut explosion. In an international investigation by a team of investigative journalists, we discovered that the Beirut explosion could not be understood simply at that local level of misgovernance and corruption, that it was actually a global event, and that it involved multinational corporations, shell companies, financial networks, notorious banks, and very possible connections between Syrian Russian businessmen and the purchasing of the ammonium nitrate. And, it, and so at that moment, situating the Beirut explosion on that global stage was no longer only a matter of, like I said, local misgovernance. It revealed this whole shadow realm of the financial world, where the ultra-rich live, where they can maneuver. And it gave us an insight into a global financial industry with its own infrastructure, formal entities, and actors that itself created the conditions for the Beirut explosion to occur. But with this new information, we're really left with more questions than answers. 
And it's a very, very complicated story, and it's still open-ended. Before we get into how the port came to explode, I want us to understand why the port became such a significant piece of infrastructure infrastructure in Lebanon. And to understand this story, we need to start with a tiny bit right before the Lebanese Civil War. Now, right before the Lebanese Civil War, the Beirut port was controlled by a private company a company effectively controlled by a group of merchants who were prominent in Beirut and in other uh, coastal cities. And they basically um, were the authority figures that controlled what comes in and comes out of the port. And they made the revenue as well from the fines and regulatory um, framework that they implemented that allows certain boats um, to come in at times and whose shipment left the port in time. And if you know anything about um, the logistics of um, import and export, you'll know that the timing is actually very uh, critical in particular industries, especially when you have goods that are perishable and that need to get to refrigeration in time. So controlling the port was basically controlling a very valuable asset, which was rewarded to a group of Christian elites who controlled it through this company. Now, the civil war happens for a significant number of reasons, which are too significant to talk about today. But primarily, it happens because there's a disagreement about who gets to control Lebanon and who gets to control the critical infrastructure of the state, of society, and of the economy. Now, one of those things that were really critical were not just the Beirut port, but all the ports across the Lebanese coastline. Now, if you see a map of Lebanon, you'll actually see that the country is literally just a tiny bit of a coast that's been cut off from Syria and made into a country. So, Access to ports has historically been important to the Lebanese economy and significantly so throughout the civil war because in the absence of a state, which was the case in Lebanon during the war, you still need to import things and you especially need to import guns, drugs and fighters to fight your war for you and to help you win the war. So control of the coastline was a a major theme of the Lebanese civil war. So the Beirut port was largely controlled by one side throughout the civil war, I believe. But more importantly, various small, mini unofficial ports started to spring up across the Lebanese coastline that would basically, their entire purpose would be to evade regulation, to evade oversight, and to leisurely sort of import whatever needed to be imported at will. This was the case throughout the civil war and even until the very end of the war in 1990. Now, in 1990, something very interesting happens, which is that a group of the warlords who have just finished fighting, they're like, okay, we want to settle, we want to finish fighting. They meet up in Saudi Arabia 
in the city of Altaif, and they're basically agreeing, okay, how do we settle this war? What do we do? How do we settle what and who has access to what in the aftermath of this um, horrendous civil war? And the decision with regards to the Beirut port is that the state basically operates it under the Ministry of Public Work, but while they're operating it as a sort of public entity, they operate it as if it was a company. And so the aim would be to raise as much profit as possible and to make it profitable. So it's sort of like a public-private thing whereby the public owns it technically in words, but privately the gains are, um, or the way that the gains are structured, the way in which they extract gains is more or less a private matter, by which we mean a sort of free market capitalist manner. And now this worked since the past 30 years really well for the Lebanese elite who could maneuver through the Ministry of Public Works to sort of pay or uh, force their way into any sort of favorable position. It simply became part of the political game of Lebanon in the sense of if you think that control of the port is important for you, you start vying for the cabinet seat, which is the Ministry of Public Work. And that way you knew you had a strong steering voice in this Mm -hmm. division of the economy. And that's basically where we ended up with right before the explosion. Now, I think another element which I didn't kind of go into much is the presence of Syria as both a partner in the civil war and then a partner in peace as invaders and later just economic partners now as i said earlier lebanon as a country is literally just a part of the coastline of syria cut off and made into its own nation state so after independence and after um, in the 50s there's always been trouble between how syria conducts itself economically and how lebanon does now when the civil war happened, Syria decided that we're not going to just allow this small, messy country to just do its own thing. We have to play an active role. And they play this active role in various ways. But ultimately, what needs to be known here is that Syria was a winning faction of the Lebanese civil war. And thus, when they all went to Saudi Arabia to discuss the division of the peacetime pie, Syria was a somewhat had a, had a stake in the spy, and so they had control through various manners. Whether it was the most critical one, which was they were allowed to have military presence in Lebanon to keep mm-hmm. uh, the peace pact Syriana, and the other one was that through these through through this intense military and intelligence presence, they were able to create pockets of monetary or economic influence as well, and so. Syria itself depends on Lebanon for imports, for banking services, which Syria does not mm-hmm. have a strong reliance on. Uh, sorry, does not have a local strong indigenous uh, banking sector, while as Lebanon has arguably one of the largest in the Middle East. And so there's this sort of interaction between the two countries, which makes Syria an important player. So but, what what was their relationship after the civil war? Mm-hmm. So Syria itself was in a civil war in 2011. And suddenly you had a splinter of a sort, right? Like 
you had half of the Lebanese um, political spectrum in favor of uh, the Syrian state and the Syrian regime, effectively, Bashar al-Assad and his supporters. And the other half was supportive of the revolution. They were supportive of the uprising, um, at least for the first four years. But this division in Lebanese politics, as I said before, extends quite deeply into its history. And it colors even the reaction to the explosion. Did the port have a particular significance after the civil war, after Syria was sanctioned, you know, after companies became... Yeah, 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 that's a very good point. Damascus, the capital of Syria, does not have a natural port of its own. Its natural port is actually Beirut's port because they're quite close. There's a highway that connects Right, it's closer to Beirut than it is to the port in Tartus, which Which is is Syria's main port. It's most like highly, um, it's most like highly developed port effectively. Right. It's like right. eight hours, if not 10 hours, like far away from Damascus, which is not practical if you're trying to get perishables through the sea, um, out of Damascus or into Damascus. So for years, um, decades, Damascus actually dependent, depended on Beirut as its point of entry Mm -hmm. and depended on the port. And so the loss of the Beirut port, especially like after 2011. So after 2011, as you said, Amal, Syria was sort of like removed from the Arab League, I believe. It was was like sanctioned by the US. It was a a pariah. pariah. Exactly. It was a pariah. And so if it wanted to get things in, in a sort of not secretive manner, but in a manner that wouldn't alert American authorities... It could do so through Beirut. So yeah, Syria is very important both for the story of Lebanon and the story of Beirut. And this is why Syria actually takes center stage in the next part. Right. One of the investigative reports basically made the claim that you had two Russian-Syrian businessmen or Syrian-Russian businessmen who basically are implicated in bringing through a variety of shell companies, front companies, financial networks the ammonium nitrate to the port of Beirut, with basically the alleged reason of smuggling the ammonium nitrate from the port of Beirut to Syria. And so the two main kind of culprits in this story are Mudallal al-Khuri and George Haswani. Mudallal al-Khuri and George Haswani are both Syrian, but they were granted Russian citizenship in the 1990s. Can you give us a bit of the background over why the hell they were in Russia? They were in Russia because they were granted scholarships to study in Soviet universities in the 1970s and through the 1980s. And they had been living there by the time the Soviet Union fell. And at the time, President Boris Yeltsin initiated widespread privatization. So in the 90s, you had new economic actors who were entering into various sectors, banking, oil, and energy. And so you had this rise of a new parasitic oligarchic class in Russia. And it was at this time that Khuri and Haswani entered into their respective industries and really started Mm. making a name for themselves. And like I mentioned earlier, were eventually granted citizenship. 
So in the 90s, even though Russia was centrally focused on its internal matters, it was struggling to regain this kind of global and regional dominance. And Syria was particularly important because it was the Soviet Union's biggest client in the Middle East since mm -hmm. the deterioration of Egyptian and Soviet relations in the 1970s. And so Khoury and Haswani became key actors in reviving links between Russia and Syria. And they rose to prominence as middlemen between the two countries, but in very different capacities. Mudallal al-Khuri was Syria's financial fixer in Russia, and George Haswani acted more as an intermediary for Russian multinational corporations who could offer these corporations access to large Middle Eastern ventures. So the point of this segment now is trying to give you kind of an idea of who are these individuals, who are these financial actors who mm -hmm. usually are very comfortable in the shadows. So Mudallal al-Khuri made a name for himself in the 90s, like I mentioned. He started buying shares in a ton of banks, which gave him access to financial capital. And then he created a network of financial institutions, businesses, and anonymous front companies with other people who work with him. He was very close to former and current Russian intelligence officers, very cozy with the oligarchs, with chiefs and colonels in the Russian armed forces, with former presidential candidates, politicians, and even the Russian Orthodox Church loved him because he has this NGO to protect Palestinian Orthodox Christians. He himself but not is Orthodox any, Christian, right? Yeah. So that's his, uh, that's the noble Mudallal al-Khuri. Um, his role in Russia was very important to the Syrian state. Although you can trace the relation between Mudallal al-Khuri and the Syrian government back to 1994, he really became a man's man in 2012. Mm -hmm. Because in 2012, Bashar al-Assad, who is the president of Syria, his uncle, Muhammad Makhlouf, his chief financer, traveled to Russia to meet with Khuri. And at this point, you have to realize that it's 2012. The Syrian government was a pariah to the international community, to They the region. Broke. It was cash strapped. And not only that, its weapons stock was dwindling, the size of its army and their foreign exchange reserves more than halved. And so they needed fuel, they needed equipments, they needed weapons. And of course, they needed money to shore up currency reserves, as well as a safe place to store its capital right. and its assets. They didn't have money, they needed money. And then when they got it, they needed to like keep it somewhere where it could accumulate interest without the oversight of like the people trying to sanction it so they were right. fucked they needed some finance guys and so who do they go to for this khuri khuri oh. was the guy to see because khuri at that point had a whole network of anonymous front companies he had an infrastructure in place to evade sanctions and through his financial institutions and banks he had access to financial capital. And of course, through his high-level government and security relations, he had very close ties with the with the Russian state. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. in 2012, Khoury helped Makhlouf buy $40 million worth of property, apartments, and offices, and offered up his network of people, financial services, and institutions so they bought to open up bank accounts. So they bought in Moscow. Is that what you're trying yes. to say? Yeah, in Russia. That, so exactly. that's a good way to basically hide money. Because yeah, exactly. you don't need a and bank account. You just buy an apartment who you know its value is going to increase. And the, the apartment's not in your name. And so not it's in your not, name, it's, not it even becomes, in your country. 
Right. And it becomes very difficult to track. Right. Um, and this is a, this is a very common phenomenon for the ultra rich who are trying to evade taxes and 100%. property taxes or put their money somewhere offshore. And so this is exactly what Makhlouf did. And this Even is exactly onshore, what Khuri provided. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's a way of doing it onshore. If you want to hide yeah. your money, you just buy up like lots of land and have it owned by like yeah, yeah, holding yeah. company three to one. So he even helped open up bank accounts for sanctioned individuals associated with the regime. Mm -hmm. And he helped the state, the Syrian state, buy fuel and grain. And he literally delivered enough cash at the front desk of the Syrian central bank to stabilize the currency. So Khoury's role in this era of uh, the Syrian state's crisis was extremely pivotal. And it also looked really good for the Houthi network as well, because eventually they started helping North Korea evade sanctions too, which is very interesting, actually, to think that there's like a whole industry on the opposite, because you end up thinking like sanctions, okay, that's kind of the end of the line because the US dominates global financial capital. But then when you see the infrastructure in place still being used in the opposite way of like evading sanctions, yes. it becomes a very interesting thing to... Yeah, you're creating, like, you're putting enemies of the US or the quote-unquote free world in one camp, and then you're telling them, we're going to apply the same weapon against you, that weapon being sanctions. So obviously they get together and they're like, how can we evade this shit together? And then we're going to evade this shit by using the same financial instruments that you use. Okay, so central to our story about Mudallal and the Syrian regime is his connection to the Syrian Scientific Studies Research Center, which is a Syrian military institution responsible for the chemical weapons and ballistic missile program. Wait, but it, it's called Research Center. I thought they studied like Bruno Latour but- and like, you know, <laughs> animal-human relations. In very fine print, you'll see it's not what it seems, baby. The SSRC was sanctioned in 2005. So this is where Mudallal al-Khuri and his relationship with this uh, very innocent research center came to be. Because Mudallal started providing the center with front companies to purchase equipment and material from mm-hmm. Western markets, including precursors to a weapon that could also be used as a fertilizer, ammonium An nitrate. ingredient. An ingredient, yes, an ingredient. Eventually, he was sanctioned himself by the United States in 2015 for attempting to help the regime purchase ammonium nitrate in late 2013, the same year that the ship docked in the port of Beirut, stocked up with ammonium nitrate. Damn. Holy shit. So this person is basically indicted already in 2015. Did you say that he got the sanction or run up? Yeah, 2015. Prior to the explosion. So George Haswani is linked to the Syrian Russian states, but in quite a different way. So he's the guy's guy as a liaison between the Syrian state and Russian companies. George Haswani graduated from engineering school in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. And after he graduated, he founded a company with his two brothers called Haswani Bros. Nice. Haswani Bros. So the Haswani Bros ended up participating in a couple of failed business ventures in Russia. 
But later in the 1990s, the Bros founded a company called Hesco Engineering and Construction, which operates primarily in Syria's oil and gas sectors. So from the start, Hasweni had been very well connected to the Syrian government. Hasweni Bros itself was registered at the address of the Syrian Ministry of Supply and Internal Trade in Yabrud, which is a city in the countryside of Damascus. And Hesco implemented a number of projects with and for the Syrian state. I was wondering, like, was he failed in Russia? And then he sort of came back to Syria and then he was like, I'm going to try it out here. I don't think I can do it in Russia. And then he, it actually worked in Syria. Well, Hasweni Bros had always been registered in Syria. So okay, I think okay, what okay. happened was it was kind of acting as this uh, multinational kind of company where it was like, okay, I'll invest in these business ventures in Russia, which I think it was a business uh, manufacturing bicycles and a clothing business. Okay. And so those failed. But then once he created the engineering company, that's when that's when things really started taking off for him. Also, at this point in the 1990s, which is when HESCO was founded, Russia's energy industry was just booming, and it sought to enter into the energy and oil markets in the Middle East. And HESCO became central to this equation of Russia's re-entrance into Middle Eastern and North African oil and energy markets. HESCO itself ended up becoming a subsidiary of a Russian company called Stroy Transgaz which is owned by Timchenko, who is a billionaire Russian oligarch mm-hmm. and close with Putin. And so Hesco and Stroy Transgas worked together across the Middle East and North Africa, in the UAE, in Iraq, in Sudan, in Algeria, and of course in Syria. So in 2005, for instance, Hesco and Stroy Transgas became subcontractors of the Arab Gas Pipeline, which is a huge project. It's a trans-regional gas pipeline that would carry natural gas from Egypt to Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. And they had a hand in that, at least at one phase of the project. Okay. A couple years later, too, Hesco and Stroy Transgas signed an agreement with the Syrian Gas Company, which is a state-owned company, to build a gas treatment plant and prepare Mm. gas fields near Raqqa. And this was very important for the Syrian state because through these investments, Stroy Transgas and Hesco were able to boost Syria's natural gas production by about 40% between 2009 up until the beginning of 2011. And this actually made Syria the Eastern Mediterranean's leading oil and gas producer. Because Stroy Transgas was already sanctioned by 2014 uh, after Russia annexed Crimea, Wait, I, so it was sanctioned not because it, of uh, Haswani. It was just sanctioned no, because it, of Russia. It was sanctioned because of Timchenko and the annexation of Crimea. Okay, so story of a transgender gas woman. What <laughs> happened? They got sanctioned. What happened then? So I just assume that because it was already sanctioned, it was more willing and more capable than other unsanctioned companies to invest in Syria. And it also had just longstanding relations with the Syrian government as well. Mm-hmm. So the Syrian state started consistently relying on Stroid Transgas to sustain Syrian oil, gas, and mineral production and industries. Mm-hmm. The Syrian state is also very dependent on these companies, and so very dependent as well on Hasweni being able to broker the deals between these companies and the Syrian state. Yeah. Hasweni is the infrastructures guy. He helps get you deals to have a pipeline, um, have investments in particular fields within Syria, 
well as the other guy Furi. Furi. Mm-hmm. he's the money man he helps yes. you hide and get money so yes, one is exactly. cash the other is, com- is like commodities and or right. like physical infrastructure exactly so in 2013 isis took over the oil and gas fields in raqqa it threatened destroy trans gases projects and profits and the regime's own control over its natural resources and this is where hasko came in because george haslani was like i can talk to isis I'm They sure were like, I wait a second, them. you're a fucking Christian. They're like, he's like, no, I can talk to ISIS. I, like, I learned this in graduate school in Russia. It's like 101 of conflict resolution and mediation. That's exactly what he did. He went to ISIS and was like, listen. What's the common here's, ground? What's, here's, let's start from Here's an agreement. envelope. <laughs> here's an envelope with $50,000 to protect the project, its facilities and employees. And in return, you'll have to share. It just has to be the case. You have to split the gas revenues and the gas products with the Syrian regime. And ISIS agreed. They were like, all right. And oh. he is the, he's the prize, he's the prize winner in this, in this little equation between ISIS, the regime and Hesco slash Stroy Transgas because Hesco and Stroy Transgas ended up getting paid 120 million euros by the Syrian state based on a contract that they had with the Ministry of Petroleum, which had a clause in it that ensured compensation for the equipment, for the machinery, for the facility, if they were looted or destroyed. And of course, when ISIS took over in 2013, large parts of the facility were, in fact, looted and destroyed. And so the regime had to just pay up 120 mm. million euros to destroy Transgas <laughs> and Hesco, which is oh. kind of fucking insane. Like, as a, an, like an insurance um, deal going wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't say in the insurance clause that we will not pay out if the country is under civil war and there's Islamic State taking over what about infrastructure. Yeah. They didn't... Yeah. That's, the, that's the problem of not having... A solid, no foresight legal, in that. No foresight, no legal team who can expect the worst. That's the weakness of the Syrian regime historically. Uh, eventually, of course, Haswani was sanctioned by the U.S. government because in 2015, the U.S. Special Forces launched the largest reconnaissance operation in the history of the U.S. Special Forces. And so they ended up finding all of these ISIS documents of agreements between Haswani Hasko and Stray Transgas and the regime. And that year, Haswani was sanctioned. So, Amal, can you please tell us how these two amazing entrepreneurs, these POC entrepreneurs, what, are, what the hell does their story have to do with the Beirut explosion? So, Hesco and the companies belonging to the Khuri network are connected to the Beirut explosion through a company called Savaro Limited. Now, Savaro Limited is a chemical trading company that's registered in the UK that bought the ammonium nitrate. The same ammonium nitrate that docked at the port of Beirut in 2013 was taken to a hangar and exploded seven years later. So we don't know much about Savaro Limited, and that is by design, because Savaro Limited is a shell company. A shell company is a company that basically only exists on paper. Its purpose is to effectively hide the origins of assets and their ownership. 
So there are many reasons why one could use a shell company. Commonly, it's used to avoid taxes or to distance the owner from their assets or to make a purchase that like something buying, you don't want the government to see or anyone to see for that matter. It's right, like, like buying 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate. You want to make the purchase yeah. and be like, you won't know who I am. I'll just give you an idea of how complicated shell companies can actually get. So imagine I'm doing some shady business through my company A, and I want to hide the fact that I own company A. So I form company B in Estonia, and then I use company B to buy company A. And then I form company C in Russia and company D in the Cayman Islands, and each buys 50% of company B, and on and on and on. So it becomes nearly impossible to know who actually owns company A. You create this complex web of companies, and it's nearly impossible to disentangle. Not right. only that, you have the support of lawyers and accountants and, crucially, banks standing behind you. And so what you have to do in a moment like this is you have to rely on circumstantial evidence because you don't have anything definitive. You're basically trying to look at the negative space that's left in the vicinity of this shell company. This is how... I can go back to kind of making the connections between Khuri Network companies, Hesco and Savaro Limited, because all three companies share the same mother company called Interstatus Limited. And the purpose of Interstatus Limited is basically to register the company, to file its paperwork, to formalize its existence. So it acts as a secretary, if you will, for, for all three. So Interstatus Limited, because it's in charge of the companies that it basically controls or manages, it registers the different shell companies that are under its management to the same address. So although Hesco and Savaro and certain companies belonging to the Huri network, although they're registered to the same address, that's not really saying much because you have thousands of other shell companies registered at the same address. But I guess one thing that's unusual that did happen is that Hesco and Savaro changed their address on the same day, although it's still not enough to make that definitive claim that Hesco and Savaro are tied. A second piece of circumstantial evidence is from an Ernst and Young report. And this report basically shows financial transfers between Hesco and Balak Ventures, which is a shell company that's linked to the Khuri network and that also serves as a front company to the Scientific Studies Research Center, which I mentioned earlier. And these financial transactions basically happened at the same period, at the same period when Savaro attempted to claim the ammonium nitrate. But again, having an overlapping timeline is suspicious, but it's likewise not enough to make that definitive link. I guess what's more incriminating than these circumstantial links is the bank which they all have accounts in, which is FBME. Before going into FBME, I just want to reiterate oh, this oh, point. Oh, detour? A detour. Okay, reiterate. Not a detour, a more like detour. a circling, a sort of hugging. No, not hugging. Mm. Just like containing, um, holding tightly. You might have to make a faculty breathing, but it's okay. You're safe. No, <laughs> anyway, what I wanted to say is to sort of like wrap up this part of the evidence because it's it's a bit, um, it's sort of the, the meat of the problem, but not the meat of it. So as Amal said, you have shell companies moving their addresses at similar times or the same day, effectively. And then you have mm -hmm. financial transactions happening on the same day of the purchase of the ammonium nitrate. And so these are, as Amal said, circumstantial evidence. They would not stand up in a court of law. They're simply, they point us. They're the negative space that we're swimming in and that they're leading us to. 
an even deeper, a more shady connection. And that shady connection is FBME. And that's why we're that. ending the episode today. So if you want to hear more, you better join us for the next episode. Bye-bye. All right. Okay. Amal is actually forcing me to come back and finish the episode with a definition or an overview of what FBME is. She's literally holding a gun against my head as we speak. Okay, jokes aside, FBME is a bank established in Lebanon in the 50s. Its story is emblematic of the many stages that the Lebanese economy went through throughout the 20th century. It started out in the 50s during the height of the Lebanese banking sector's golden era, when oil profits and private money from newly independent states were pouring into the small country. In the midst of the civil war, which started in 1975, the bank decided to move to Cyprus in 1982. It stayed there until 2003, when it moved its headquarters to Tanzania. It moved its headquarters to Tanzania, as it was sensing that regulators were coming to know better and understand what they were doing. Now, you may ask, what was FBME doing? Well, to give you a small summary, in 2015, the US government accused FBME of allowing money laundering on a vast scale. This money laundering was offered to terrorists, drug traffickers, repressive dictators, organized crime groups, and financiers of the Syrian regime. If that sounds familiar, wait until what the OCCRP, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, announced in 2020 in the aftermath of the explosion. The OCCRP found out that at the time when the boat that carried the ammonium nitrate made it to Lebanon, the boat owner was indebted to FBME. Now, according to FBME, the boat owner actually offered the boat as a collateral, but the bank refused. In any case, the accusations from the US government led to the shutting down of the bank by 2017, and that bank as an entity no longer exists. So the next episode will go into the details of the boat owner and how the boat made it to Lebanon and how the ammonium nitrate stayed in hangar number 12 for seven years. If you want to find out more, tune in next week. Thank you. The man in the street, the man in the street believed that recently the Americans plotted to overthrow their government. And the evidence is strong.